Episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we are reviewing episode five, The Saranga Conundrum. Written by Chris Chibnall and directed by Jennifer Perrot. Injured and stranded in the wilds of a far-flung galaxy, the Doctor and companions must band together with a group of strangers to survive against one of the universe's most deadly and unusual creatures. IMDb is giving this a 6.2 and Rotten Tomatoes an 87% which statistics-wise makes it the lowest episode so far of the season. What they've said is it's a classic Doctor Who episode of old, a solid if unremarkable adventure that neatly wraps up its dueling threats by having them simply cancel each other out. It does deliver on a different emotional level, but on a realistic level, there is a lot of problems. I'll tell you my overall thoughts. I think that they did a lot of things right here, But the disparate elements didn't quite fit together. We had confusion from the start, a lot of questions that were brought up that weren't gone back to, such as, what was the doctor looking for in that scrapyard? What about her ectospleen injury? And where is the TARDIS? They're throwing a lot of big words at you, places, people that you don't understand. And there's a ton of different storylines that aren't quite mixing. We have this bomb that's threatening to go off and blow up our ship. The fact that we have to fly through a minefield. The gifted man giving labor. The pating. <laughs> and I think because there's so much going on, our secondary characters are a little weaker than they normally are. They don't get the chance to develop, and some of their deaths are even a little bit strange, awkward perhaps. And compound this all with the stakes just didn't feel that high to me, and I know other people are bringing this up. There was a lot of things that should have been scary. These hostility protocols that Rhesus One Planet could blow up this ship at any point to try to protect themselves. But they kept sort of moving away from that, so it never felt real or impending to me. And more than anything else, the Pating character was not frightening. I thought he was cute. He was cute. He was fun to look at. I agree with you on almost all of this. Yes, he wasn't frightening, but I still think he was one of the better bad guys this season. Maybe third best. He was well-described. Let's put it that way. All the information that we got made a lot of sense. It fit together. I like the concept of him and what he could do to a ship, especially one that's high tech and dependent on these things to run. He looked really good for what he was. The CGI was awesome. But I was thinking right away of a couple different things you could have done to make him scarier. If that's the point, that he poses a real threat to the fact that he's killing some of our characters. I know that this has been done before, a la Gremlins. Hmm. But maybe every time he eats and gets that energy, he grows a little bit larger. I was going to say just that. Maybe he multiplies and divides into an army of little patings. So one kind of cute looking one running around isn't too intimidating. But if we have to deal with a hundred of these things, or maybe just make them a little scarier and bigger looking, not like a cute 
cuddly creature that happens to have fang-like teeth. Yeah, I like the idea of it getting bigger as it eats. Why does it need energy? We don't know, right? So maybe the energy is what makes it grow. Right, and then when he starts lacking it, he could shrink shrink back down again. Yeah, then she can maybe, then the doctor can maybe develop something that can take the energy from it until it's super small. But remember, we're dealing with Doctor Who, where one of the bad guys during David Tennant's era put on human skin suits, and their main thing was they farted all the time. Yeah, (laughs) and I'm not saying this hasn't happened before or there isn't a way I can roll with it. I think it was just on top of so many other things. It was like somebody laid out a bunch of post-it notes on the table. These are things we could do for the episode, maybe 25% formulated in their head, And they said, well, no, just don't continue to develop them. Let's just do all of them. Mm. Let's do 25% of all of these things. And um, I think you could feel it. It felt very choppy. I'm starting to really wonder why Chibnall is so scared of the TARDIS. It's almost like he doesn't want to touch it. So, of course, he'll establish that there's a new TARDIS. He'll give you that scene, but then that's it. She's going to lose it all the time or it's going to go away. That's going to get super frustrating. They didn't even address it by the end of the episode. I mean, it was the doctor's primary concern in the beginning. And I do want to talk about that. I like the way that was portrayed. Plus, you bring up this massive issue. Why is the doctor recovering slower than her human companions from these injuries? Those are two very interesting points of reference that we almost drop by about a third of the way into the episode. And we're not going to come back to them now. With other things we've had like that in past episodes, enemies or aliens that go away, issues that seem to be a big deal, we keep saying, maybe we're going to go back to them. I was just going to say that. Maybe she's going to be hurt tomorrow. I mean, next week. At episode five, there's only a certain amount of time that we have to do this. We can't just keep throwing things at the wall and hoping they'll stick and maybe we'll come back to them. I am concerned that perhaps he doesn't quite know where he wants to go with a lot of these things or he's not confident in the full development of any plot line any creature yet and this is the way we're dealing with it that's a little frightening to me i i need him to have a clear vision Mm -hmm. of what he wants this doctor who to be i mean even down to little things the creature takes the doctor sonic screwdriver now i didn't want him to eat it I didn't want it to disappear. Nobody was happier than me when he spit the damn thing back out, and later it turns out it still works. But that makes no sense. (laughs) This creature is chomping on anything mechanical, electronic, and he's looking for things that are an energy source. The Sonic is perfect. Why would he spit it back out? I guess he drew the energy and then he was done. Maybe he spits everything out. We just don't see it. He takes the energy from whatever he's eating and then spits it out. Okay, that could be. How does it reboot itself later then, though, if it's got no, no energy? Idea. I don't know. It's just, that's what I mean, that when there's a couple of little things, I can roll with it. It felt like they were mounting up throughout the episode to the point that I couldn't really get into it. I couldn't enjoy what was happening. I didn't hate it. It wasn't my least favorite of the series. And in hindsight, there are some things that I truly liked about it. I do feel like it was a return to classic Doctor Who, last in this episode, felt a little more like a pattern being established. We had some orange, again, the same orange with with the antimatter, which I, I really like this orange that they're using. I kept thinking in the control room, I wish her TARDIS looked more similar to that control room. The control room looked great. Actually, I thought everything looked great in this episode. I like the idea of the setting, the hospital ship. I really like all of the thought that went into this 
how it's almost totally automated, so you only need a couple of people to operate it. They're going around picking up injured patients and bringing them back to the planet. Yeah, it's cool. But because of anything that might threaten presumably the much larger number of people on Rhesus One, they have protocols and a plan in place for any contingency. And if they need to take that ship out, what six people as opposed to the rest of the planet? That's really scary. Yeah, but believable. They don't want one of their ships to come back and land on Rhesus, contaminate the whole planet, and then they end up as Rhesus pieces. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the fact that we could only ignore the alert two times, and in the third time, they were going to take action. There was a series of steps. Either they would have to destroy the Pating, eject it from the ship, or they were going to destroy the whole damn ship. That's beautiful. That all works really well. Do we have to be flying through a minefield simultaneously? No. Do You know, there's like a ton of other things that don't quite mix in with that central thesis of the episode. It's the opposite problem we had with Rosa, where I felt like there wasn't enough going on. Mm. Now it was too much. Yeah. And opposite to some of that, I started saying this last episode, I do like that there's actually things for our characters to do. That it doesn't just feel like assigned tasks that make no sense. They are split up. We don't get as much time with them this episode because it's more about the doctor. Again, that's okay with me. Some episodes can be more companion focused and sometimes we get a little more of the doctor. I love that. If that's the goal though, I don't know that you need to try to fit in companion development where maybe it doesn't totally work. Like the conversation between Ryan and Yaz about what happened to his mother That's a really pivotal piece of information we haven't gotten yet. It felt like they just jammed it into that part of the episode. It didn't develop naturally for me. I see what you're saying, but I'm noticing that Chibnall is giving a little bit every episode with Ryan, a little bit of background. What made Ryan think that way was the fact that Yas was pregnant at the same age that he is now, Ryan, and that his father was when he had Ryan, and realizing that Yas wasn't ready and neither would Ryan be. Yeah, that worked great. And I thought the stuff with him and Graham surrounding that and Ryan having to kind of step up and be emotionally present for this man, which was challenging for him, worked great. But it's almost like we have to meet a quota. Okay, but we also want Ryan and Yaz to have a conversation Hmm. and that relationship to develop a little more so he can tell her about what happened to his mom, even though they have six Six minutes minutes. to get back to this really, you know, it's just like... You got to put it where it lands, not because we have to have it and there's a break here. So how about this spot? So, you know, like I say, a lot of the elements are right. Maybe too much going on. It's not quite gelling and mixing in this one episode perfectly for me. I did like the fact that Chimnall's really good with giving little key moments to our companions to have some funny scenes. Once again, we had a nice funny scene with Ryan and Graham this episode because they play well off each other so well. And Yaz had a nice, funny scene when she had uh, played a little English soccer. Yeah, yet yet again, Yaz doesn't get enough to do. And I'm worried if she ever will this series. The Ryan Graham stuff is working great for me. The development of the Doctor, on point. I love that this felt like the first episode this series where there's bits of the old Doctor here. She is a little overconfident, a little arrogant at points, a little selfish at points. She's going to step in. She has her agenda. I need to find my damn TARDIS, and I don't care what's going Hmm. on here because I'm in control, and I have the Sonic, and shut up and listen to me. I love that Astos steps up and says, listen, there's other things and other people happening here. Yeah. 
You need to take a minute and reflect on that. But that's stuff the old doctors would have done. I really like that they're making her more humane and compassionate, but she should retain some of those elements too. For sure. I was disappointed that Astos died because up into that scene, I was like, he's going to be my MVC for sure. Because I, I really enjoyed him. Yeah, and balanced her kind of worked really well with the doctor. I thought that could have gone somewhere. He was killed off a bit quick and unceremoniously, and then we're left with Mably, who wasn't as fully developed or interesting no. to me. So it was kind of a weird decision there. Yeah, but I think that was on purpose. She wasn't really developed yet in that profession. It was Astos who definitely was in control. So that was the point, letting her know she can do it, which I didn't mind, but you're right. As far as watching these people on TV, I'd rather lose Mably. We did, however, get some bits of really interesting information. Like I said, there were some great parts about this. The doctor outright tells them what she is a doctor of in this episode. Medicine, science, science. Engineering. engineering, candy floss, Lego, philosophy, music, problems, people, hope, mostly hope. Oh, I'm struggling to see much hope here. Okay, some of that could be a little jokey, but I think for the most part that's true. Sums up the doctor. And I love learning more about her. And we've had many doctors, even in the old school Doctor Who, state that in so many ways. I'm the doctor of everything. I'm a doctor of or many things. She really lays it out, though. Yeah. We also get a little more about a doctor's body, her anatomy. Here are some things we've known from previous Doctor Who. She has two hearts. They beat at 170 beats per minute. Her internal body temperature is about 59 degrees. And she has a respiratory bypass system, which allows her to go without breathing for extended periods. Here we learn she has something called an ectospleen. Whatever in the heck that is. <laughs> Do you think we'll ever come around to find out? Yeah, I think something's up with that because when Astos first is looking at her medical readouts in that initial med room, something shocks him. He looks surprised and he's kind of showing it to Mably. I thought it was the two hearts. It could be, but it felt like there was more to that. And then, yeah, she brings up this ectospleen that winds up kind of becoming a non-thing. It's just hurting her for a while. But mm. we've never seen the doctor not recover from injury super quick. And her human counterparts got the treatment. They seem fine. So that was a little concerning. I don't think yeah. it was there for no reason. I'm wondering. Hopefully that builds to be a really interesting story by the end of the season. Oh, maybe she's pregnant. I was going to say, can she get pregnant? But presumably, why not, right? Yeah. We don't know of any reason why a Time Lord couldn't. We also got another fun fact about the episode. This one about our actors, not our in-universe characters. Prior to Doctor Who, one of Bradley Walsh's most notable acting jobs, and Walsh plays Graham here, was the five years he played Detective Ronnie Brooks on Law & Order UK. He had three junior partners across the series run, the last of which was played by Ben Bailey Smith, and he plays Dirkus in this episode. That's pretty cool. So they've known each other before. Yeah. <laughs> and speaking of, let's go to our new Faces and Places section. There were quite a lot of characters this time. We mentioned Astos and Mably, our two medics. Astos played by Brett Goldstein, and Mably by Lois Chimimba. Then we had the threesome, including General Eve Cicero, played by Suzanne Packer, who we're told is the most decorated general in Kiba history, known for her 907 days in continual flight, fighting the Aeonians and saving their species. Her brother, 
Darkus Cicero, played by Ben Bailey Smith, who is an engineer, and Ronin, played by David Shields, the general's android consort. Uh, I think this group was perhaps a little underserved in the episode. Plot-wise, I guess we kind of needed them. Oh, we definitely needed them. To steer the ship to save the day, but that was due to certain things we put in there that I'm already questioning. Do we need to fly through an asteroid Uh, field? And if we do, yeah, we need these two to help us. Um, Again, another thing they brought up was Ronan was the only person, I call him person, uh, on the ship that could touch the Pating. Right. And that seemed like it was going to be really valuable in defeating him. It hardly played any part later on. It played zero part. So it's only because you're building in storylines that I don't know if they need to be there that we have these characters that aren't totally served. And maybe, who am I to say, but maybe it would have been a little stronger if we narrowed our focus a bit and just really played up the main things that we have. One secondary character, though, that I loved was Yoss, played by Jack Shalhoub. And he is the pregnant Gifton man. The Giftons, we learn, are humanoid species from the 67th century. Males and females can become pregnant in their society. Males birth only male children and vice versa. The young are gestated for a week in a pregnancy sack before it is painlessly cut open during birth. And they have two umbilical cords. <laughs> this character was played really well. It was a mixture of funny, emotional. This is where they do spot on with some of the secondaries. Not only did it tell us more about another planet and other people, it showed us glimpses of things we've been getting, what's going to happen in the future, and what that's going to mean for Earth humans. And it doesn't look so great. (laughs) We've gotten to the point where other species don't even really understand Earth culture. It didn't seem like Yoss was at all surprised that Ryan or Graham couldn't give birth. What's happened to us at this point in time? Are there still Earth humans around at all anymore? And what's happening in the wider world, galaxy, universe? A big topic that we'll come back to, they keep talking about the darkness, the terrible state of things in the 67th century. It's very vague. We don't quite understand, but it seems like there are some dark times ahead that we're going to get into. And finally, we had the Pating, who, according to their readouts, has a threat level of Chalice, the worst one, one up from Beetroot. (laughs) (laughs) He has a fatally violent nature. None has ever been kept in captivity because they can eat through any material. They are non-carnivorous but devour all non-organic material. They move at great speeds and are impossible to wound or kill, only temporarily stun. And their skin is toxic to most life forms. And real quick, they're actually not a sponsor for this episode, but we finally got to cook last week's sponsor, Green Chef. Mm. And it was amazing. The food was dynamite. Two meals, in fact. The cooking was really easy. The spices were all there for you. We really didn't have to think. We just had to read and, and follow along. I enjoyed that curried steak. All the flavors in that meal were so different from what I would normally cook with. So fresh and amazing. So we wanted to remind you that the Clatchers get $50 off their first box. So you can give it a try for next to nothing. Just go to greenchef.us forward slash CKC and enjoy the experience that we just had. Don't forget you can change your box or your plan at any point in time. So give it a shot. And if you do it, let us know how your restaurant quality meals come out. I'd be excited to hear some of the other recipes. That's greenchef.us forward slash CKC. That's going to do it for our characters. Let's jump into our plot. We open up 
searching for something in a planet that's part of a junk galaxy. Presumably, as the doctor wonders if that was actually Cephalon 59, there's a lot of these planets within the galaxy that are just landfills. The doctor tells the team she programmed a detector, and she found seven the last time she was here. But we never get to find out what that is, because unfortunately, they stumble upon a camouflaged sonic mine that explodes. We also learn that we must have missed some adventures in this gap between arachnids in the UK and now. Apparently, she took them rain bathing in the upward tropics of Castano. That sounds like it would be visually amazing, but maybe they didn't have... Uh... An adventure there. It was just hanging out. Definitely some time has gone by. They've done a little traveling. They're, de- they're really comfortable with each other. But this could be something that comes up later this year in the comics that they release or the graphic novels that they release. And we're going to have to find out what the heck they were looking for, right? At some point? I hope so. There's so many things that we thought we'd find out more. We thought we'd find out more about her sisters or sister. Hopefully we'll find out more about her skeleton Will we meet Ryan's dad? I think that's one that we will meet eventually. And will we find out what they're looking for? (laughs) Well, after the explosion, the group awakes in a hospital where two medics are evaluating them. Astos and Mably are surprised they can't find med tags on them, devices that store all medical data and history. They explain the group was picked up on the edges of the Constant Division, a disputed territory they're normally kept out of. They pulled the crew from the debris and stabilized them as sonic minds disrupt your internal organic stability. Even though the doctor is in pain from her ectospleen, she's eager to get out and find her TARDIS before scavengers can get to it. While anxiously trying to find her way out, the doctor meets General Eve Cicero, who is a legend mentioned in the Book of Celebrants for helping to defeat the Army of Eons. We don't know for sure, but this book seems to be a collection of significant figures in the universe. The 11th Doctor previously removed a lot of records noting his existence. So this volume may only include her most recent achievements. The general says she thinks she's heard of the doctor in this book before, uh, but it sounds like just a little piece of the whole volume she mentions. I feel like I say this every week, but Jodi is really turning into the doctor for me. Her quips are getting better. She feels like the doctor to me. She even has David Tennant's mannerisms sometimes. And that, well, that little bit that. of bragging well. there. Well, it was really a whole volume, wow. you know? Wow. 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 Well. And then we get the scene where Astos confronts the doctor. He manages to explain why she can't leave. The Saranga is a medical transport ship, a quad zone medical craft on a four day flight to Rhesus One. It's only a two medic crew as the ship is fully automated. Their job is to keep the patients alive until they get to the facility. Also, their course is remotely programmed and locked. The onboard crew can't interfere with the navigation system or it will trigger hostility protocols. So Astos tells the doctor she's interfering with his job. He's trying to get these patients the urgent medical care they need. And plus, he's done 37 tours. He will get them back safely. So she finally starts to slow down and listen. Together, while looking at the map, they see an unidentifiable object, which breaches the ship. So they split up to go check it out. Meanwhile, Graham finds Dirkus trying to hack into his sister's medical records. Apparently, the general has been lying to him about what's wrong with her. We learn there's some tension between them. He thinks she looks down on him for his job as an engineer. 
And something else is going on here. He finds Ronan giving Eve an adrenaline blocker shot, which apparently you can't take with cordon fever, the issue she's supposedly suffering (laughs) from. Obviously not. We'll come back to them in a minute. While this is happening, Ryan and Yaz meet Yas and learn he's planning to give the baby away once he delivers because he's, quote, not fit to raise a kid. Plus, these are dark times, a turbulent world. So that's mention number one. Privately, Ryan tells Yaz his father left when he needed him and has always been like a gap in his life. When he was 13, his mother had a massive heart attack at home and he found her. He explained people always said he looked like his mother. He understands his father must have found that hard and didn't cope well. I'm wondering if I'm confused about his feelings or if Ryan's feelings are changing over time as he's having a minute to kind of think about it rationally, what his father must have gone through. Well, I think he's confused about his feelings and he is starting to be able to think about it uh, less emotionally and more mentally meaning he's gone through a lot now. He's seeing a lot more of the world. He's starting to understand, maybe my father isn't this evil man. Maybe it was really hard for him. Not that he's going to forgive him, but maybe give him a chance to get to know him. That's what it seems like it's stemming out to be. By the way, are we just completely over the fact that Ryan's supposed to have... Yeah, I worried about that right from the beginning, that they included it a bit up front but had trouble how they were going to portray it and then less and then dropped it. I think they didn't know how to show that. There's a lot of things like this dyspraxia that uh, I'm just wondering if Chibnall's a little in over his head. Yeah, you can't just bring that up and then go away from it. And I I did feel like, well, is Ryan going to be the central companion because they're giving him all this backstory, this stuff to deal with emotionally, his mom and dad struggling with the dyspraxia. It also winds up leaving the other two. His grandmother and step-grandfather. Right. So the other two wind up getting less. They aren't as fleshed out. And we don't always have time to deal with Ryan's stuff. It's just all in all with the whole series, too much. Yeah. And we spoke about that at the beginning, right? How are they going to manage this balancing act? past, present, sci-fi, teaching episodes, new doctor, three companions. (laughs) I I think it's too much. Um, And yeah, it's it's a lot to deal with for any showrunner. Since we're talking about it, we should bring up the fact that the word in the galaxy (laughs) is that there will not be a Christmas episode this year, but we still will get a holiday episode, but it might be a New Year's episode. Yeah, they're saying they're more firm on that. And the reason being Chibnall thinks there's no new Christmas stories to tell? Well, Gaddis said he felt like the well was running dry at his point. Oh, come on, man. This is like a lack of creativity and vision, though. What, are you going to have a New Year's story? Is that easier? I don't mind the timing either way. I mean, the big thing is we're going to get something, a post-series special episode. Ball might be a spaceship or something. There's a million ways you could go with that. But yeah, I think it's a lot of conjecture right now. We're not really sure of where they're going to land with it. Well, let's come back to the doctor. She and Asto split up to search the two life pods on board, where they assume the creature will enter the ship. The doctor's portside pod is already gone, but Astos is tricked into entering his. It is quickly locked and jettisoned. He calls to tell Mably he won't be coming back just before the pod explodes. So we've kind of gone over that on... Um, a little quick and awkward, perhaps, but it keeps the story moving forward. The doctor continues on and finds the creature, who is eating torn circuits and ship parts. 
While Mabley thinks dealing with it is hopeless, the doctor says all they need to do is imagine the solution and work to make it a reality. Whole worlds pivot on acts of imagination. The problem is the sensor scanners have picked up on the creature and they have to evacuate it or Rhesus One will destroy the ship to ensure it doesn't come back and endanger all of their people. Yeah, you get three strikes. If you ignore them three times, they assume that you're lying and something is wrong and they're going to blow it up. Of course, they have to do that, right? It seems so easy at first. Oh, we just swipe the notification away. <laughs> no problem. She's like, you know, we can only do that twice. <laughs> so the doctor brings everyone up to speed on the situation. The general says she's encountered Patings before and... They determine after finishing their central systems, it will turn to the antimatter drive that powers the ship. This is progress. Things get smaller, faster, and cheaper. This is like the iPhone version of CERN, accelerating enough particles to power this entire craft. So how does it work? The particle accelerator smashes the atoms together like a little antimatter factory to produce positrons, which are then stored very carefully inside electric and magnetic fields. The positrons interact with the fuel materials to produce heat, which produces thrust. That's pretty old school, this one. It's beautiful. Antimatter powering the movement of matter, bringing positrons into existence to move other forms of life across space. I love it. Conceptually and actually. In the present time of the 67th century, they have a particle accelerator that the doctor explains is kind of like a smaller, more efficient version of CERN. Let's take a moment to talk about this. This is clearly the teaching point of our episode here. How do the antimatter facts in the episode stack up to scientific accuracy? Again, radiotimes.com is just awesome with this. They've been digging into the scientific facts this time they spoke with Simon Garrier, co-author of The Scientific Secrets of Doctor Who. So credit to them for this information. First, we should probably explain just briefly in case you don't know, antimatter is the opposite or partner of particles regular matter. It has the same mass but opposite electrical charge. The idea was first proposed in 1928 by theoretical physicist Paul Dirac. And then it was first seen in 1932 by Carl Anderson, who coined the term positron, and we heard her say that terminology in the episode. In real life at the moment, humans have only been able to create minuscule amounts of antimatter, but have considered the possibility of a drive like the one we see here, as it would be an incredibly useful fuel source. Well, yeah, the ability to create energy, we don't have that ability. We just know how to take energy and use it till it's gone. It'd be nice if our phones had antimatter batteries that never went out. That'd be cool. <laughs> That'd be amazing. Well, and this form is incredibly efficient. So if an antimatter particle collides with its equivalent, the result is what they call mutual annihilation and the release of energy. 39% of the fuel released is pure energy. Let me put that into perspective. You could power a trip to Mars with one ten thousandth a gram of antimatter. Wow. Unfortunately, it's beyond any current technology to be able to do this. In rough terminology, the doctor is correct when she talks about this miniaturized particle accelerator, an advanced version that smashes the atoms together to create positrons that are carefully stored inside of electromagnetic fields. I love how Durkin said this was an older model. 
Hmm. Like he looked at it like we were, we would look at the iPhone one. Yeah. So right now we need this huge thing to be able to have the particles kind of smash. Then you need a safe way to store the resulting antimatter. And they're able to do that smaller, cheaper, everything else they tell us in the episode. The interactions with the fuel produce heat and the heat produce thrust. And this powers their entire ship. So yet again, accurate if you project this theoretically (laughs) way into the 67th century future. This is the point where they come up with a plan of what they're going to do on this ship and divide up jobs. Ronan and Yaz will stay to protect the antimatter drive. Ryan and Graham will go with Mably to help Yoss, who has just gone into labor and needs his doulas, <laughs> his birth partners. And the doctor will deal with the pating. Mably also advises the doctor to examine the general so she will know what her real medical issue is. So that got interesting that she couldn't tell the doctor because of confidentiality, but she knew it was something the doctor had to know. Uh, yet again, though, it, it's kind of briefly addressed. We don't totally get to understand, the doctor confronts the general, who admits it's not cordon fever, it's something called pilot's heart. I guess it causes surges of adrenaline around the heart. A big one could create a heart attack and she dies. I wish I knew what pilot's heart is and how you contract it. Now we know that she spent 907 days in continual flight, but the way she brought it up, like I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't think I'd ever get pilot's heart. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's a rarity or if it's brought on by amateurs who don't do the right thing. Physically like taxing the body too much. I, I mean, they, they mentioned some of these extreme conditions she's put herself in. Maybe that could cause it. Yeah, we don't get to find out. It's just that she's been keeping it a secret. She can't go public with that because she's supposed to be their poster woman. They can't find out she's got this weakness. So she's been trying to control it with these shots. And it seems like these shots are just like opioids are for us now. You need more and more for it to continue to have any effect on you. Well, it's a a temporary fix. Yeah. You know, Um, because she's getting these adrenaline surges, it's a blocker that stops that from getting out of control. But Dirkus, her brother, overhears this and is disappointed she didn't tell him the truth. His name is too weird because it sounds like you're making fun of him like, Dorcas. (laughs) I don't mind it. Again, another detail that's really roughly thrown in here. He tells the doctor he managed to rig a primitive piloting bypass system so that they can fly through the asteroid field a quicker route to Rhesus 1. Don't know how he did it. He doesn't really get much of a hero moment there. Yeah, but I knew this was coming when he, when we were first getting to really know him, I think with the doctor and he's, no, not the doctor, with one of the companions, Graham. And he says, me, and he pulls out a screwdriver or something. He's like, I'm an engineer. And I was like, okay, this is going to come into play. Yeah, and his <laughs> older sister doesn't really think that means much. She looks down on him for what reason we have no idea because they both seem like really kind, nice I, people, and he has to like prove to her he can do it. it that, that was in his head. She never really looked down on him for it. Maybe. It's... It's not given enough time for us to really know or care about that situation. So now we get to this point where Eve is going to fly it. She puts on these sensors, whatever they are, that allow her to manually navigate the ship. But she knows it's going to take all of her energy. I mean, they're really just setting it up. Yeah. In about five minutes, she's, she's going to die. And her death, in fact, is weird and uneventful to <laughs> the point that I turned to you and I said, 
Is she dead? Or is she just, dead? Did she just pass out? Like, what's happening right now? I don't get it. Um, and Dirkus just puts on this stuff. Turns out he could steer a ship too, I guess. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I, I think you can take that whole subplot out and we won't miss it and we'll be better off for the time we get to spend elsewhere, perhaps. Yeah, deal with the Pating thing. Of Make course. that a more central character. Make it more scary. It gets bigger. Make it, that's the issue. Have a little more time for our main characters. Yeah. None of our core group was really dealing with these three too much. No. So you don't need that for them. And like we said, you don't need that asteroid field. You have enough with these hostility protocols and, you know, maybe you don't want to get back there quickly because you got to get rid of the pating before you go back there. So I think, yeah, I think that would have been fine. In the control room, the pating closes in on Yaz and Ronin. They temporarily keep it at bay, but the scanners start sending up alerts. The doctor realizes the creature went for the life support systems, the lights, her sonic. It seeks out and feasts on energy. Well, one of the funnier parts of this episode, I really enjoyed the little soccer kick. But you were right. They could have had Ronan do something that would have been a lot more spectacular. I thought that was sort of the whole point of his character. Also, they had all this info about the creature up on the ship. They didn't know that it no, remember they said they don't know why, what its intent is. They don't know why it eats everything. Those are the things they didn't know. Yeah, that's kind of weird that they never figured out it's going after energy sources. But a cool bit here that makes everything kind of come into focus. I mean, you can see it really quickly once the doctor talks about this self-detonation bomb. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't make it any less interesting to me. Her and Yaz take the bomb carefully to an area where they can detonate it and I was thinking wait she's actually gonna blow it up because (laughs) I thought it was gonna involve the pating but then the timer's counting down and it was a little bit kind of scary there I actually liked that part as the time started ticking away I was like okay this episode's gonna end soon I hope they don't just wrap it up again like they've been doing with the last couple episodes and they did manage to wrap it up but it was in an interesting way that I actually really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a little time left, the Pating finally takes the bait of this trap and eats the device. They immediately close and lock the hatch door and eject it from the ship as it absorbs all of the energy. Very cool scene. They definitely did not cut corners with the Pating. It exploded in his stomach. Yeah, people said it looked like a glowworm. Another yeah, podcast cool. mentioned that, and he's just kind of like floating around all happy and full <laughs> in space. <laughs> that would have been cool if it got huge at that point. Mm-hmm. And then she went to open the hatch, and it almost was too big to get out, but then finally came went out. That would have been awesome. <laughs> I love that. While this is going on, in the birthing pod, Yas becomes frantic when he learns since the backup generators aren't working, he won't have his birth bud. Whatever that is. Ryan and Graham try to coach him through it. Graham says he's learned skills from watching Call the Midwife. Very funny. And Ryan tells Yoss, more seriously, he doesn't have to be a perfect father. He just has to be there. They both team up. They cut the umbilical cords and think, if only Grace could see them now. Arriving at Reese's One, they instruct the ship they will conduct a detox and then can admit them to the facility. Mably tells Team TARDIS they have been a light in dark times. Another reference. Without Eve, we learn Ronan has come to the end of his service and will be shut down. There's kind of a touching moment here where Dirkus apologizes if he wasn't kind to him in the past, acknowledging that he gave Eve great service and asking if Ronan will encant for her. Joined by the others, he gives the following prayer. 
that wraps our episode. Not only was this beautiful, but I think it's going to come to mean more for Team TARDIS. This was the big push we've been talking about referencing this darkness. He says, May the saints of all the stars and constellations bring you hope as they guide you out of the dark and into the light. On this voyage and in the next, and all the journeys still to come, for now and evermore. So yeah, that was one of our big questions coming out of that. What is this darkness? Is that something we've seen referenced in multiple other ways with some of our other villains this season? And maybe that's how it's all going to kind of add up. We know that in some far future, Tim Shaw and his buddies are keeping humans frozen like trophies. Aelin is conducting an intergalactic race because there's so many that are impoverished and just willing to do anything to try to keep their families alive. Some kind of rampant racism is going on with Crasco and his people. And we've got crooked politicians like Robertson. I would love if there's a thread that ties that all together in the end. I think that's what we're hoping for. Where is the thread? Where's the Doctor Who we know? These underlining things all culminating to mean something. Mm -hmm. And it's only episode five. We still have a little bit of time. (laughs) So that was the plot. Definitely not our favorite episode so far. But before we go into our ratings, I'm going to edit this. Today's Monday. I'm going to edit this and get it out by Wednesday because we have so many podcasts coming out this (laughs) this month. I'm finishing up editing our bonus podcast, which is about the truth of Thanksgiving, some current event news, so many things. I don't want to divulge too much. It's a great bonus episode. But also, we just recently recorded one of our movie reviews for this month, Bohemian Rhapsody, which we really enjoyed. And I think this podcast is going to be super fun. And then after that, we have Fantastic Beasts 2, which is going to be amazing. This is our wheelhouse. Yeah. So, Clatchers, if you want to take part in that, join us over at Patreon. Go to coffeeclatchcrew.com, click on Patreon, and join the crew. You're not only getting more content and admittedly better content we're having a little bit of trouble with doctor who because it's not the best season so far but you not only get more content from us you also know that you're helping christine and myself out we work really hard to provide some free entertainment and some fun entertainment a little digital water cooler talk but also every month you get a chance to win free ckc gear yeah don't forget the raffles are still going on over there every month there are two winners One for the new members that joined Patreon that month and the other for all existing members. That means you always have a chance to win. That will keep going thanks to our sponsor's donation. So remember, join the crew by going to coffeeclatchcrew.com and clicking on Patreon. And speaking of the free stuff, even though we're only midway through this season, we are always looking forward, right? Come the new year, we will continue our coverage of The Magicians, a show that just keeps delivering every single season. They exceed expectations. I am really excited for that time to come as well. And we've had some of the actors on and we've been in talks with them for this season. We're about 90% sure we'll get a little more of the crew of the Magicians crew on our podcast. If you haven't watched that yet. It's on Netflix. It's on Netflix. You have the time. And there is not a lot of other big hit shows happening during that time frame. So it might be a good time to check it out. But back to Doctor Who, we're going to give our ratings on a scale of 1 to 10 Sonics, Jason. What do you give the Suranga Conundrum? Well, I really love episodes that take place in the future. It's always fun for me that as a kid, I always thought about the future and computers and technology getting better. And they're inside of a giant Apple computer because it's all white. (laughs) 
The Pating, although we have stated how it could have been a better bad guy, I thought the graphics were great on that. I loved how funny it was and cute at times. The doctor is really getting comfortable in her skin, her new skin. But it wasn't my favorite episode for all the reasons we've already stated. So for that, I'm going to give it a 7.4 Sonics. Yeah, I agree with you. There's a lot of things to like here, and it does have that classic Doctor Who feel that I enjoy. It's just those elements not coming together, a little lack of cohesion. I'm not as low as IMDb and some of the others, though. I'm going to give it a solid seven. But you're lower than me, finally, this season. (laughs) Yes, I am, going back to kind of episode three numbers. And that's going to take us to our MVC, Most Valuable Companion for the Episode. And Clatchers, as you know, you need to follow us on Twitter at CKC Podcast, because after every episode, we ask you the question, who's your most valuable companion? And leave us a comment. We gave you eight options, but disguised as four. Yeah, formatted a little differently since there were so many characters and they tended to be paired up for major moments of the episode. That's how we listed them here. We gave you Ryan and Graham, Eve and Dirkus Cicero, Astos and Mapley, Yaz and Ronan. Coming in in fourth place with 10% were Yaz and Ronan. I understand Yaz also had some time with Ryan. She had some time with the doctor. But for those epic scenes where she's guarding the antimatter drive and in comparison to an android that can touch and hold this thing, she's kicking way more ass than he is. She's kicking pating. (laughs) Uh, But... You know, as we mentioned, Yaz hasn't been getting as much development as we'd hoped, and that is for sure stepped down a huge notch from last episode. I know we'll be returning to her next episode more heavily, perhaps that's why, but yeah, no real surprise that that's fourth place. In third place was Astos and Mably with 18%. Mably, even though we did need her for her care, she really wasn't all that important in the end. She did step up as far as her character, if she was a real person. She overcame. She wound wound up getting them all back there safely. Astos was also a very interesting character, but taken too soon. In the ranks of secondary, they were maybe midline for me. I think if Astos remained the entirety of the episode and he continued on the trail that he was, I think he may have won Mm. MVC. Agreed. Coming in third place with 27% were Ryan and Graham. Well, they delivered the kid. They uh, were teamed up again. They had a really funny scene, and Ryan had very touching scenes. It's very evident that Ryan is being sculpted as one of the major companions, at least this season. We're getting a lot of backstory with him. Yeah, but they were not involved in the bigger plot line, I guess, of getting rid of the pating, the bomb, guiding the ship safely. They were with Yoss the whole time. So let's I... be, yeah, Well, let's be fair. Ryan and Graham had to capture a huge spider last episode. So maybe they, did, they needed to yeah, uh, we, we give them a, a break. Yeah, we a little break <laughs> on the sidebar mission here. But the emotional development was great. And finally, coming in first place with 45% were Eve and Darkus. I was a little shocked because as secondaries, they disappointed me. But for advancement of the plot line, they were certainly the top ranked in this episode. Well, they did save them. They saved everybody. We didn't think that this episode needed that whole asteroid plot. But if we just forget those thoughts, they were the ones inevitably to save them. If we have to have it in there, it's not their fault. But this is bad writing. I mean, Eve literally sacrifices herself. She knows when she puts on those sensors, it's going to take her life. 
And Durkis last minute rigs this way of getting into the system, winds up taking over and completing the ship's landing. They really have some heroic moments. Yeah. I can see why people voted for them. So I'm assuming because Durkis was a Cicero, he was trained in pilot flights. It sounds like they all were. Yeah. Uh, because the learning curve was so steep that Eve was even saying to the doctor that she wouldn't be able to fly it. Mm. So I'm going to assume that he, as a child or a teenager or what have you, had major training and then veered away Mm -hmm. from the family job. Well, what did the Clatchers have to say about this? Brian T. said, hands down to the Ciceros this episode. Eve knew she was not going to survive, but did what she had to do for the rest. This little monster defied all physics, (laughs) the unbeatable, impossible foe. In any other show, it would be a problem, but this is the doctor. (laughs) Pating. Brian S. says, y'all should feel special. Watch Doctor Who instead of football. Yeah. And apparently it was the right choice as my team lost. He chose the Cicero siblings. He says, something has to be said for sacrificing yourself for everyone and healing old wounds. Hopefully this was more helpful this week. Yeah, that's an (laughs) awesome comment. I like it. Thank you, V. Well, Jason, this is kind of a tough one. Who do you go with? I don't know. The doctor. <laughs> That's why we don't put her yeah, as a choice, because we know. would always pick her. I'll go with the Cicero family. Even though I thought that the asteroids did not need to be there, we had enough problems, they took care of that problem for us. Well, I'm going to have to go with Astos and Mebley. While perhaps underserved by the writing, they were some of our biggest secondaries this episode, more fully formed responsible for the safety of all the passengers here. They really had the information on the ship, the planet, the creatures. And I like the way that they interacted with our characters. As we mentioned, I really liked the way Astos stood up to the doctor and uh, made her understand what was happening here, teamed up to work with her. I wish we'd gotten more of him, but in every other way, they were pretty good. Well, that's going to wrap it up for episode five, except for our spoilers section. If you are afraid of that, we'll see you next time when we review episode six. For everyone still here, we got some fun facts that we didn't mention in episode. One of them, I think, perhaps is impossible to see on your own. I don't know if people paused and zoomed in or had some other source of information, but do you remember the console screen that pulls up the information about the Pating? Yeah. Apparently, in rapid succession, it shows little thumbnail images of other creatures before she selects the Pating. People said those creatures included... A Cyberman, an Ood, a Weeping Angel, a Centaurin, a Silent, a Silurian, and a Zygon. I don't know about you, it just makes me miss the old bad guys. Everything but Daleks, right? As far as our our major. Yeah, but what's weird is this century that they're in is the century that the Daleks have one of their major wars. Yeah, isn't it strange that wouldn't have been one of the ones on here? I wonder if that means something. We also talked about the sonic screwdriver being eaten. Apparently, this happened before in the episode of Christmas Carol. There's so many. I know I meant, I forget a lot. Of I don't know who or what ate at that time. <laughs> uh, but also, it's not the first time the doctor has lost the TARDIS. In fact, several times during her 10th incarnation in the Impossible Planet, Blink, and the Poison Sky, just to name a few. And it's not the first time by a long shot we've heard about antimatter. It started in 1972 with the Three Doctors, where the first three doctors travel through a black hole to a universe of antimatter to face a renegade Time Lord. 
1975, Planet of Evil, the fourth doctor talks about antimatter and in fact carries some around in a bucket at one point. In 1982, Earthshock, the Cybermen crash a space freighter powered by antimatter into Earth, causing a colossal explosion and wiping out the dinosaurs. The Doctor's companion, Adric, was also killed in that explosion, one of the few companions to die while traveling with the Doctor. That's crazy. Two months ago, for our Patreon bonus, we actually went into the real reasons scientifically why the dinosaurs went extinct. That was, that, all moot. that was all moot because this is the real. <laughs> Makes total sense. That's why we all got it wrong. I love it. Well, we also have information more so than usual about the upcoming episode. So I'm going to warn you again if you're afraid of that. The next one, episode six, is called Demons of the Punjab. It appears the team returns to present day Sheffield and we'll see Yaz's family again. There, her grand gifts her a special watch sending our heroes on a trip back through time to 1947, landing in the middle of India as the country is being torn apart. While Yaz attempts to discover her grandmother's hidden history, the doctor discovers demons hunting the land. Who are they and what do they want? Well, this is going to be a Yaz-heavy episode. Great. I'm excited. Mm -hmm. Yaz! And it sounds like they're going to get into some of this really difficult history, so it is going to be a past historical episode talking about the Punjab, which is a geopolitical, cultural, and historical region in South Asia, specifically in the northern part of the Indian subcontinent. During this time, 1947, I mean before and after, but specifically here, we had the official split from the former British province, and the Punjab was divided into the Dominion of India, which comprised primarily Sikh and Hindu, and the Dominion of Pakistan, which comprised primarily Muslim. There was intense violence. Over 14 million people were displaced along religious lines. There were overwhelming refugee crises, up to 2 million deaths, perhaps. We still don't even know the exact number. The newly formed governments were unequipped to deal with the migrations of staggering magnitude, people trying to get back over the lines so if you were a Hindu trying to get back over to the line to the Dominion of India and vice versa, but because they couldn't deal with that, there was violence and slaughter on both sides of the border. And I'm talking to the point of real genocide and horror with the violence. I don't know how much of this they're going to go into, but by setting it during this time frame, that's certainly going to be relevant. And then we have these demons hunting the land. Is that literal, the way that they brought Crasco into the Rosa Parks episode and it was somebody from the future or another element we're dealing with or is that metaphorical demons that are happening at this time I'm not really sure and as we said this is definitely going to uncover some more of the history and background of Yaz and her family as well sounds like a lot packed into one episode I'm excited it should be interesting also the episode after that seven is entitled Kerblam oh cool <laughs> so no idea what's up with that but we'll keep you posted so that wraps it up for this week. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Remember, if you have any friends that are into Doctor Who, let them know about the CKC podcast. Spread the word, retweet. And if you like what you're hearing, give us a rate and review. Write us a few words on iTunes. It will help others to continue to find us. Till next week, this round's on me. This round is on me. I'm
try again.